Welcome back to another episode of Brain Buzz. I'm your host, Kyle, and beside me today, as always, is... Drake. And Drake, <laughs> uh, we are joined by a very special guest. Can you please tell us who that is? Yes, today we are uh, speaking with Dr. Shana Skakun sparling uh, And Shana, today we're going to be talking to you about how people make decisions that impact their sexual health and then factors that make them good or bad at protecting their health when they're in the situations that are important, right? That's right. <laughs> cool. And, <laughs> and so, Shana, give us a little bit of introduction about who you are, where you're from, and what you're doing, and what research, or what brought you to doing this research. Sure. All right. So, um, as you said, I'm Shana. Um, I have a, a PhD in applied social psychology. And um, I right now I'm doing a, a postdoc research fellowship with Robin Milhausen at the University of Guelph. And this fall, I'll be starting a, another research fellowship at Ryerson with, um, with Dr. Trevor Hart. And um, yeah, I forgot what I was talking about. What was the other question? <laughs> <laughs> so what kind of research uh, do you, are we going to be talking with today? And, and what was like, what have, what have you done? Or what, what have you focused on in your research? Right. Um, so I do a lot of research looking at how we make decisions about um, whether or not we're going to use condoms and the kinds of conversations that people have about using condoms, the kinds of strategies that they use to try and convince somebody else to use a condom. Um, but a lot of my research has been focused on um, factors that impact even starting that conversation, um, like especially sexual arousal. I do a lot of research on how sexual arousal impacts our ability to make decisions. So, uh, Shana, with that in mind, what is it that you want to teach us today in the public outside of the learning objectives and what we're going to learn? Why is this important? Um, I think it's really important to understand how your decision making can be impacted by different things that are happening, different contextual cues, different things that are happening in your environment, different things that are happening in your body, because we all kind of have this expectation that other people and ourselves are going to always be able to logically think through our options and, and make a sensible choice. And we like to think of ourselves as, as sensible creatures that we, we weigh the pros and cons and we do the best thing because that's the best thing. And, and uh, that's a nice dream, but that's not really how decision making happens. Decision making is super messy. We use all these mental shortcuts. Um, and a lot of times those mental shortcuts, even though they're very adaptive and allow us to do a lot of the complicated things that humans need to do, Sometimes they get us into trouble because there are shortcuts that we call them heuristics that can that can re really lead us to bad situations um, when we apply them in situations where we actually don't have the right amount of information. So I guess kind of the, the takeaway that I'm hoping people will kind of learn from this is um, lower your expectations. Lower your expectations for yourself. <laughs> lower your expectations for other people. <laughs> Uh, be kind and forgiving with one another, but also expect that it's going to be hard to make decisions and, and know that you need to set up things in advance that make it easier for you to make healthy choices for yourself um, because you're not going to be able to make good decisions kind of in, in the heat of the moment. I don't know if you can hear my air quotes, but... <laughs> <laughs> That's... Yeah, we're picking, them up on the, picking up on those for sure. Yeah. So, you mentioned heuristics. Do you mind reminding us what heuristics are? Sure. So heuristics are basically decision-making shortcuts. They're quick, short rules that we use to help us make decisions about things. Um, and we, we have a lot of different kinds of heuristics. Sometimes our heuristics are like, if the door doesn't open when I push on it, I should try pulling on it. 
Um, or, you know, doors that look a certain way are probably doors that are good for pulling or doors that are good for pushing. And you know how sometimes you approach a door and it has a different kind of handle and you're like, this looks like a handle for pulling, <laughs> but no, 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 you need to push to open that door. That's an example yeah. of your heuristic for like what kind of door handles are for pulling and what kinds are for pushing, kind of not leading you to the right <laughs> answer sometimes. <laughs> Do you ever get uh, where you go into a door and the, uh, like the push is on the inside and it's like reversed for you yeah. walking in and you're like wait i know that that says push so i try and push it and then uh, it has the handle that you're, that you're supposed to pull but yeah you push that but you push it anyways <laughs> yeah, that's miserable but that's a that's a that's a perfect yeah, like metaphor for what our example of what a heuristic would be yeah. was trying knowing that this is what you do generally and then when it doesn't work you have to adjust you have to do something yeah. else and there's uh, a bunch of heuristics no. that are specifically related to to sexual health decision making um, and there, there are rules that, like, when I start mentioning them, you'll be like, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. That's a sensible rule. Um, like, there's a, there's a common heuristic that known partners are safe partners. So if I, if I know this person really well, it's probably okay for, for me to have condomless sex with them because I know them really well. Or um, monogamy is safe. People assume, like, oh, I assume that I, this person is only having sex with me, and I know I'm only having sex with them, so then... That's probably a safe bet. It's probably okay for us to have sex without condoms. <laughs> that makes sense, and that's that can be very problematic. I imagine for all oh, I, I know that can be very problematic for a lot of situations where those heuristics start to fall apart. Maybe you're you're not necessarily as monogamous as you thought you were in the relationship, or they were they didn't know they had something coming in, even regardless of whether or not you know them well enough, that's right? right? It's really interesting, and that's I mean that's big maybe be a big, big part of what we're going to talk about today. I imagine, but. Um, that that leads into one of the terms that we were yeah. So I mean, there's, yeah. there's a couple like uh, definitions going in that we kind of want to shore up before we get into talking about your work, uh, because I mean, things like th these are a couple of the words that you're going to define for us. But condom negotiation, relationship motivation, and partner familiarity. Those things on the surface sound very cut and dry and very obvious as to what they would mean. But I mean, there's a lot that goes on in condom negotiations that we wouldn't think about on the on the surface level. So what? how do you guys define condom negotiations in your work? Condom negotiation is really interesting because when you when you say like, okay, it, it sounds really formal in business, like, okay, now we are entering the phase, it's condom negotiation time, like, everybody sit down, like, get your lawyers, we're gonna be negotiating what, what's happening <laughs> with condoms. But it's, it's actually very nuanced. And so when I use the term condom negotiation, I'm talking about a lot of nuanced things. I'm talking about Verbal strategies, like verbally saying to somebody like, hey, we should use a condom tonight. But it's also nonverbal ways that people communicate their intentions, like just taking a condom out of your nightstand is, is negotiating condom use. Or, or like pushing somebody's hand away when they bring out a condom, being like, how about no? Um, so it's verbal and nonverbal strategies. Right, and that's, that's really important, especially for... Uh, the real world implications, right? Not everybody's going to be sitting down with contracts, writing writing the contracts out before they have sex. Right? I don't think anyone condomless or. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think to the I don't know if you watched The Office, but I think of Dwight and Angela writing out verbal co or, oh, yeah. uh, agreements on how much times they're going to have sex. Yes, yes. <laughs> like that's the perfect example in my mind of what a condom negotiation or a sex negotiation <laughs> doesn't look like. Yeah. Um, so. That's great. That's really good to know, and, and that's informative going forward with the questions that you're asking in your research. So how do you define relationship motivations? Because that's a mixed bag right there. I mean, that... Yeah. 
that yeah. can go a million different ways. Yeah, that's right? another term that, like, when I say it, you're, you're like, okay, I kind of know. I think I know what that means. But um, when I talk about relationship motivation, I'm talking about how motivated somebody is to pursue, establish, and maintain long-term romantic relationships. So it's kind of how bad you want to be in a relationship with somebody. And, and some people have really high relationship motivation. Some people are really motivated. They, they're looking for, they're looking for a life partner. They're looking for somebody that they can spend a lot of time with, somebody who's going to be their best friend, but also somebody that they have sex with. Um, they're looking for a total package. And other people are not really high in relationship motivation. Some people, they don't want to have just one person that they spend a lot of time with. Maybe they want to have several people that they spend a little bit of time with superficially. Maybe they don't want to have a, a really long-term romantic relationship that's not something that they are uh, psychologically oriented towards or prepared for. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Uh, yeah. And so, I mean, the last thing before we get into the work that you do and the, the research area that you're in, uh, partner familiarity is something that, in my mind, it's again it's something simple it's how familiar you are with your partner but in what categories are you discussing familiarity is this like someone might not be as familiar with their sexual behaviors previous sexual behaviors as, of their partner or uh their social life or whatever there's a lot more to it than just being familiar with somebody right yeah that's right so when i'm talking about partner familiarity i'm talking like at this kind of very abstract feeling of how well you feel like you know somebody how familiar somebody feels and, uh, and I look at partner familiarity in a particular context because I'm really interested in looking at how familiarity impacts people in, uh, with new sexual partners. Because with somebody that you've been dating for a really long time, you've been dating somebody for like a year or two, they feel very familiar. And so, you, but you also have a sense of their sexual history, at least from the last two years, because you've been with them. Um, and so that's really different to somebody who you've just met uh, you just swiped right on them half an hour ago, and now you're meeting them in a restaurant. That's a, a, that's really different. But when you're looking at, at new partners, there's that person you just swiped right on, and now you're you're meeting up with them. But then there's also somebody that you've known for a long time, and so somebody that you've known for for a while, but in it, as like a different kind of acquaintance. Like like Drake, you and I have known each other for a few years. Um, we have a sense of familiarity with one another. But I actually don't know anything about your sexual history. I don't know if you tend to use condoms. I don't know when the last time you got tested for an STI or HIV was. I don't know what the result was of your last test. So even though you feel really familiar to me, I don't have that kind of information to actually make a decision. If we were going to hook up, I wouldn't have the kind of information that I need to decide whether or not I should really strongly insist that we use a condom. But the thing is, because somebody might feel more familiar, you might be able to trick yourself into thinking, oh, it's, it's probably fine because I know them really well. They seem like a lot like me. I feel like I don't have an STI, so they probably don't, so it's probably all fine. Which kind of ties right back yeah. into that heuristic I mentioned of if somebody feels more familiar, we tend to assume that they're a safe partner. But really, we don't have any information. Right, so, yeah, yeah. So it would be like, uh, just like a, an example, a friend that you've known for a long time, maybe through high school or undergraduate or past that or whatever mm -hmm. for many years you've known this person but never in the context of the bedroom yeah yeah and and in that situation you don't have that partner familiarity because you're familiar with them in a different context mm -hmm. okay. yeah it's a, it's, yeah. A, it's it's i think this happens a lot of the time with people that are meet that are going back to either hooking up or or dating or seeing their 
their friends that they've known for a long time. They're like, oh, I know this person so well. I don't know anything about their sex life, but I've known them for so long. So I'm comfortable not even having these conversations. I can see that being a huge problem for a lot of people. They'd always Uh, look after me. Like I know that they'd always take care of me. Yeah. But they might not even know they have an STI. Yeah. Or like these are things that could be playing huge roles Mm. in whether or not. Oh, I mean. Uh, it's much more of a reason to have a, c- a conversation about it than not to have yeah. a conversation about it. But it's, it's kind of neat so, too because familiarity can be built really quickly and there's been some research looking at how fast it can be built and uh, and it, it turns out just like a short conversation with somebody that the longer you talk to them the more familiar they seem. So, so somebody that you maybe swipe right on and then you were texting with them for several weeks uh, they might now feel more familiar. You might feel safer with them um, then, then maybe you should because you, you maybe haven't asked the right kinds of questions. So familiarity can be built really quickly. And, uh, and so it doesn't necessarily have to be like somebody from high school, somebody you've known for a long time. It can be um, somebody that you've just been spending a lot of time with recently. Yeah, absolutely. Really makes point. a lot of sense. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. Shana, all of this kind of leads to the first question or one of the questions that seems evidently apparent at this particular moment to me. But why is your question worth asking? And I think we've just kind of addressed it in many different ways, but can you tell us why it's something that we should be investigating? Yeah. Um, well, I think it's something we should be investigating because um, I kind of got into the sexual decision-making game because I just find it so interesting how, uh, how easily we're able to trick ourselves into making decisions that are more fun um, than decisions that are sensible. And so I think it's important to, to look at all of these factors that can, can influence our decision-making, um, partly so that we can kind of be prepared for them and, uh, and hopefully make better rules for ourselves so we make better decisions that keep our, our, ourselves healthier and safer, but, uh, but also so that we can be more forgiving and understanding of, of other people who, who haven't made the best decisions. Because it's so easy when it's not you to be like, oh man, you definitely should have done that. What were you even thinking? But if you can kind of have a little bit more empathy and compassion, you can, you can kind of be like, oh, I could see how you would have thought that would be okay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, I think of so many times when you're having conversations with friends or family members about making a decision in the heat of the moment. Uh, and, and someone always has some snarky comment about how they shouldn't have done it yeah. looking back whenever they're talking about it 24 hours right. or weeks later, months later, right? And that, that, I think that runs so true with this topic as well with sexuality when you're as you're going to talk about about being sexually aroused and being in the moment those things can really weigh on somebody and and dictate what their decision making might be um so let's just get into it then shada so what what is your what is the research that you are you have done in this area and what have you been where i mean what is the research question first off and then how are you going about answering it Okay, I have to look at my notes. <laughs> I think we can come. I think we can come back to the literature review afterwards to, or with yeah. during yeah. this to kind of fill in uh, why you're doing it or what what approach you took. But I don't think we need to really go lit review and then yeah. into it. I think it's more about more interesting to see what you've done and what the work, what your findings are, and then talk about the lit review if we come to it. Yeah, yeah, that's why I kind of skipped it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Cool. Um, all right. So I guess kind of my main research question has been what are the factors that go into how we make decisions about our sexual health. And, uh, and I kind of touched on uh, like a little bit about uh, why I think that's a, an important question. But, but one, of the, um, one of the other reasons why it's important is, I mean, 
it's important to have compassion for others. It's important to keep ourselves healthy. And um, and condomless sex is still the main way that people are getting sexually transmitted infections, including HIV. So, kind of one of my one of my goals with my research is to understand how how people are are still kind of putting themselves at at, at risk, and then hopefully that will inform how we can help people not put themselves so much at risk. <laughs> <laughs> and so what kind of factors are you looking at th uh, within this, uh, within sexual health that are you looking at that might dictate whether or not they're making the right decisions during, uh, during these times? Right. So um, kind of the, the main factor that I've spent a lot of time exploring is sexual arousal because sexual arousal is really interesting because it's kind of like, like being drunk because you, um, dip, you start valuing different things. You start having an easier time ignoring um, different Things that should be risk use, and uh, and so I wanted to learn more about um, what kind of an impact it has in, in men and women, and like why, why, what mechanisms that are related to decision making are being impacted. So I did I did a few different studies to try and, and check that out and, and dig into that. So I think the first study I did was I just wanted to look at the does the effect exist in men and women because there had been a lot of research that had only looked at for the effect in uh, in men, and they had done some interesting studies. Um, they had found some meat stuff with just a male sample, and some of the studies that had tried to use a, a female sample, they tried to incorporate women in their research, it hadn't really gone very well for them. And so when I took a look at some of the methods they were using, I was like, oh, well, they're just kind of showing like attractive faces and then expecting things to happen. And I'm like, okay, well, I also know from, from Meredith Shiver's work at, at Queens where they're, they're actually studying how sexual arousal happens in, in women that women kind of need a little bit more action to get going. You can't just show them a picture and expect them to get turned on. They need to see video of like people doing stuff. And, uh, <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, let me run a study where I have a male and a female sample. I'll actually use video material that, sh that, will, that should be um, nonviolent, uh, consensual, like, like feminist-friendly porn um, that should work for men and women. And, uh, and let me see if I can, if I can see an effect. Is, is there an effect uh, on, uh, on people's decision-making related to sexual health? And, uh, and I found that there, there was. My, my sexually aroused men and women were both showing significantly greater intentions to engage in risky sexual behavior compared to my men and women in my control condition. So, so that was great uh, for me because uh, I, found, <laughs> I found something interesting, um, useful. Um, yeah. And then the next thing I wanted to know was, so does sexual arousal impact us only in decisions that are related to like sex stuff and condom stuff, or does it have a bigger impact on it? So I set up a really fun study where I had people come into the lab uh, and then think they were playing blackjack against a computer. So it seemed like you were playing blackjack against my computer, but really I had rigged everything. I knew I had rigged like exactly what hand you were going to get, how many times you were going to win, how many times you were going to lose. And I, I set it up that way so that I could have a lot of control because I really wanted to know how people were going to respond with ambiguous hands of blackjack. So I don't know how familiar you are with blackjack, um, but mm -hmm. the goal is to try and get as close to 21 as possible without, without going over. Um, and so if you get like a four, you're obviously going to ask for another card because you're pretty far away from 21. And if you get a 19, you're probably not gonna ask for another card because you're really likely to go over and bust. But if you get something like a 16 or a 17, 
Uh, and this was something I didn't really understand until I actually played blackjack at a real table. Um, and people are really nice when you play blackjack. This was at the conference we went to in Kelowna, Drake, where my supervisor oh, yeah. and I kept taking breaks <laughs> to go and play blackjack. Uh, Didn't you do very well at blackjack that night, though? I came home like $50 <laughs> yeah. up. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, all thanks to running this study. But it was really interesting, yeah. to, like, because I was getting a lot of advice playing blackjack, asking the other people at the table who were more experienced, like, what should I do? And uh, and when it came to 17, I kind of look over and, and like, be like, any advice? And they were like, they threw up their hands. They were like, no, no, no. Getting a 17 is very personal. Like, you have to decide what your rule is going to be, like, what you're going to do, which was actually really interesting because that's exactly how, like, sexual situations work. When you're like, okay, do I need to make sure we use a condom tonight or not? Uh, it, and it has to do with, with, you, with your personal rules that you've set for yourself. So uh, I, let me get to the punchline of the blackjack study. So I had people come in. <laughs> some people watched sexually explicit material, some people watched neutral clips, and I found that my sexually aroused participants, my, both men and women, were, uh, they were playing more risky on those ambiguous hands of blackjack. They were more likely to hit on those tricky hands, like a 17, than people who were not sexually aroused. Oh, wow. <laughs> so you basically came up with a brand new scale of sexual arousal based on blackjack. <laughs> it's the blackjack scale. <laughs> That's really interesting to me, and it's it's funny because the the relationship between sexuality and, and and having riskier hands could be engaging with riskier people too, right? Like you're you're taking more of a bet by not talking about it. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. I really like that. So so from that finding, then did you move back into uh, the realm of, of safe sex conversations and condom like condom negotiation, or was that like the cherry on top of your findings? <laughs> Well, from there, I was like, okay, so we know that sexual arousal uh, messes with our general kind of impulsivity, and it seems to mess with our kind of overall, uh, our ability to make good uh, good decisions related to our sexual health. So I wanted, that was when I started to be like, okay, but but why? Why is why is sexual arousal doing this? What other things is it impacting? So, uh, so from there, I did a couple more studies, just trying to dig into what is sexual arousal doing to us? And so I ran a study um, that, uh, that was looking at uh, self-efficacy, which is your, your sense of your ability to do things, um, which is, I thought, okay, that might be neat. So I looked at general self-efficacy, so would sexual arousal impact how capable we feel as human beings to do things? But I also looked at uh, um, sexual self-efficacy specifically, so does it affect how capable we feel of asking for things that we want? like? asking to, to do an act that we want, or asking to not do an act that we want. Um, or uh, So basically our ability to say yes to things we do want and no to things we don't want. I also looked at how sexual arousal impacts motivational states, um, looking at um, reversal theory to kind of inform that. Um, because reversal theory basically says that your personality isn't just stuck one way, you're not just somebody who is, um, who's always doing things a particular way. So you're not, so let me put this uh, kind of related to the, the aspect of uh, motivational state that I was looking at for this study. So um, I was looking at the balance between paratelic and telic motivational state. So when you're in your telic motivational state, you're in a state where you're very goal oriented. So this is when you sit down at your laptop and you're like, all right, let's get all this stuff done. I'm gonna get this manuscript written. I'm gonna grade all these things. I'm gonna do all the work I need to do. This is gonna be great. I'm so motivated and excited. 
this is going to be so great for my career. And the parallelic state is almost the opposite of that. The parallelic state is much more focused on enjoying the moment, having a good time. It's much more playful. So when you're in your parallelic state and you sit down at your computer to do your work, that's when you're like, okay, well, first, let me just see like what's happening on Facebook. Um, are there any up should I be reading my web comments? Let me just see like update some web comments like what's happening in this storyline I've been following. Let me answer some emails. And then once you've satiated your paratelic state, it's easier to reverse into the telic state, which is why it's called reversal theory. Um, so I wanted to know, would sexual arousal shift that balance? Would sexual arousal shift people more into that more enjoyment oriented motivational state? because I wanted to know, is that is that why people keep saying like, oh, I was just focusing on enjoying the moment, that's why I didn't use a condom last time. Um, so, to get to the punchline of that story kind of quickly, um, <laughs> I, I found that sexual arousal didn't seem to have any effect on self-efficacy. It didn't affect our general sense of our, our capability of doing things. It didn't affect sexual self-efficacy. And I also tested it with condom use self-efficacy, and it didn't seem to have an impact on that either. But it did shift people's motivational state. And for that study, I had people fill out my measures before they came into the lab and then again in the lab. And I, I found that, that in people in my sexual arousal condition, they shifted to a motivational state that was, that was much more paratelic, so much less goal-oriented, much more focused on enjoying the moment. So that kind of suggests that it's not that sexual arousal makes people not feel capable of negotiating condom use, but instead it puts them in a motivational state where they, that's not important for them anymore. They don't really care that much about it. They just want to enjoy the moment more than have a conversation. That's interesting. <laughs> really cool. And so you have more, you had one more study on top of that? Yeah, I did one more because I or, wanted to look at um, self-control and sexual self-restraint. I was like, okay, let's see. Uh, does sexual arousal impact um, our self-control? Maybe uh, sitting in my lab watching sexual explicit video clips burns through your self-control and, uh, and uses it all up. And then it's harder to make the decisions. Um, so I found in that study that people who were sexually aroused, they scored lower on my measure of self-control and they scored lower on my measure of sexual self-restraint. And, uh, and that was really interesting because you actually, that is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, self-control is something that we use to make sure that we behave appropriately in different social contexts. It's, it's what kind of helps you make sure that you um, wear pants on the subway and, and don't, uh, don't pee on the seats just because you need to go. It's what helps you like wait and get home, uh, pee in an appropriate place, or at least wait till you get around the corner and find a dark alley. I don't know. I don't know what's, what people do. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and in a sexual situation, you do want to be able to relax your self-control. If you have too much self-control in sexual situations, then it's not very fun. You're not going to have a very good time, and, and that can lead to things like in men, um, erectile difficulties. So you do want to be able to relax your self-control, relax your self sexual self-restraint, because that leaves you the space to try exciting new things that before you might have been too nervous to try um, or too shy to try. But then the other thing is that in the wrong context, that sort of sense of uh, relaxed self-control, relaxed sexual self-restraint can open you up to uh, engaging in behaviors that are dangerous for you, um, either because it opens you up to unwanted pregnancy or, or STI infection or being hurt by somebody, like being physically injured by a, by a partner that maybe shouldn't have trusted. So it's good. It's a, it's a double-edged sword. You want to have some self-control but be able to relax it, but you want to be able to relax it with, with people that you can trust and in situations that are safe. And I can see then exactly how that familiarity becomes, you know, 
part of that double-edged sword and problematic in that way. Yeah. Especially because you said it can develop really quickly and you can feel that sort of nice, tranquil peace that you get when you're with somebody you're familiar with. Um, and then that just leads down to all these just, terrible decisions. Yeah, mm -hmm. well, expectations are vastly different from situation to situation based on mm -hmm. familiarity, right? You might be familiar with that person, be willing to engage in these activities and then not know that they're not the right partner for you or some, some other issue. And uh, that familiarity might be a guise to kind of propel you into different situations that you might not have with anybody, uh, someone else. Yeah. Yeah. Whenever there's a common negotiation in the real world, what do you, what is the differences between gender? Like are males more likely to be initiating this condom negotiation? Are females more likely to be negotiating these condom negotiations? What's going on between genders generally? Oh, that's a really good question. And it's kind of, it's a little bit of a hard question to answer. And uh, and that it's kind of where that verbal and non-verbal condom negotiation thing kind of like comes up again. Because right. um, there's, there's all kinds of like interesting things happening. So um, one of the recent studies I did, I asked I had people read through a, a vignette, like a, a story, and imagine themselves as the main character in that story. And then I asked them at one point when things start to, like if you can tell you're gonna have sex with the other person in the story, I asked them, okay, how much do you wanna use a condom? And how much do you think they wanna use a condom? And it was, I got some really interesting responses to that, um, to be, like comparing my heterosexual men and my heterosexual women. Because my heterosexual guys, they were like, mm, I'm like fine if we wanna use a condom, I'm like sure, whatever. But they expected that, that the, the hypothetical female partner, that she would really want to use one. And the, uh, the heterosexual women responded to those questions. They were like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I want to use a condom. But they were like, I expect that the hypothetical guy doesn't want to use one. So, they, so mm -hmm. this kind of gives us a little peek into what's happening with condom negotiation. So guys have an advantage because male condoms are, are so much more popular if you're the person with, with the penis, all you have to do to negotiate condom use is take out a condom and put it on. And and you're, a lot of guys can kind of be like, this this is what's happening now, like, let's go. Um, but for for women, they have to, for women who are having sex with, with people who have a penis, so women having sex with, with men, they have, to, uh, they have to say something. I mean, they can also kind of take out a condom and be a passer and be like, here you go, this is what's happening. And for in a lot of interactions, that's all it's going to take, and it can be like super super subtle and like awesome, and doesn't have to like interrupt the moment a lot. But uh, but making that decision to do that, to to take out the condom, and be like, here you go, that uh, that can be something that um, makes can make somebody really nervous. If you expect that that other person is going to be like, oh what that all of a sudden mm -hmm. makes doing that a little bit more risky, makes taking the condom out of your bedside table more risky if you're worried that they're going to be like, oh, like, what is this? Like, you don't trust me? Like, right. what's going on? I thought yeah. we were cool. Meanwhile, you yeah, might be thinking like, yeah, I thought we were cool. Here's a condom. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, totally. Like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> the complete opposite. <laughs> um, Shana, do you have any insight on what that looks like in non-heterosexual couples? Have you ever investigated that, or do you know of any work in that area? I've started doing a little bit more work in that area because I, I am really interested in, in how people um, negotiate something that's a little bit tricky like that, especially when a lot of how you're approaching that ne negotiation is going to be impacted by assumptions you're making about what somebody else wants. Because that's the thing with like a lot of sex stuff, a lot of con and like safe sex, condoms, everything. With a lot of sex stuff, 
people don't want to talk about it because they are afraid if they talk, it will break the spell. And, uh, and so people are more likely to just try something and see if the other person says yes or no, rather than being like, hey, would you like to try this tonight? I think it might be cool. Um, people are more likely to just attempt it and then see if, see if the other person will go for it. So um, that's how I started, got it, started getting more into looking at, uh, at cotton negotiation, because I was like, okay, like what kinds of assumptions are we making about what the other person wants to do? How is that impacting us? How about, and that's where things like partner familiarity and relationship motivation start coming in because I wanted to know things like the more, the more badly, <laughs> the more you want to be in a relationship, does that impact how worried you are about what the other person wants to do? And does that impact how likely you are to bring up condoms? And, uh, and so I told you, I asked people like, oh, how much do you want to use a condom? How much do you think the other person wants to use a condom? The other thing I asked them, was uh, how likely are you to now bring up condom use? And, uh, and so I, I, uh, I, I asked also, I had measured their relationship motivation too, and so I wanted to know, would wanting to be in a relationship really badly impact what you pay more attention to? Do you pay more attention to what you want to do or what you think the other person wants to do? And I found that people who aren't very high in relationship motivation, they base their decision on whether or not they're going to bring up condoms based on how much they want to use them. But somebody who's really high in relationship motivation they base that decision on both on what they want to do and what they think the other person wants to do, which really can set right. heterosexual women up for a disadvantage because if they really want to be in a relationship with this person and they expect that he doesn't want to use a condom and they're taking that into account, is that going to now inhibit them from negotiating for condom use as strongly as maybe they would like to? Right. Yeah. And does that and does that hold true for? Uh, like kind of going back to Kyle's question for the non-hetero couples or individuals that are engaging in non-heterosexual intercourse. So gay male or men seeking men or uh, women and women protecting themselves is still important for STI protection, right? Yeah. So did they follow the same, I imagine they would follow the same kind of uh, same guidelines in the sense that they're still thinking about what their partner would want and whether or not they're going to ruin the mood or not. Yeah. Uh, and that reminds me of your study. What was the word you use? Sorry, it's para- Telic? Yep, paratelic. Yeah. Yep, yeah, so paratelic being like you want to enjoy the moment and then telic being being more goal oriented, right? Yeah. So protecting yourself from an STI. I imagine that's a huge part of it within no matter what the sexual orientation or dynamic is within the within the sexual intercourse, right? Yeah. So a lot of uh, a lot of my research has focused on heterosexual couples, but I've been lucky to be able to do more and more research with uh, with guys who have sex with other guys. And it, it turns out that they, just just like heterosexual couples, they also really don't want to talk about stuff. They also would much rather try and make an assumption about like what they should do with that person, what their expectations are based on what that person has said yes to, what they have said no to, which can really, if you are avoiding having conversations about stuff, it can really set you up for, for dangerous situations. And so a lot of the, when I asked the, the guys who have sex with guys that question about how much do you want to use a condom, how much do you think the other guy wants to use a condom, their answers were really strongly correlated. So they, they, there was a really high correlation between how much they wanted to use a condom and how much they thought the other guy wanted to use a condom. So if they really wanted to use condoms, they expected that other guy felt the same. And if they really didn't want to use condoms, they expected that the hypothetical other guy felt the same. So they're kind of already assuming that the other, that their partner wants the same thing that they want, um, which can be good, can be not so good. 
Yeah. <laughs> and the way that I saw it, and I guess the way that you're supporting it is, well, it doesn't matter what sexual orientation you have. Uh, no one likes to have conversations about condom use. <laughs> Which is kind of it's it's kind of sad because that's protect it's it's to protect everybody and that's why we teach it and that's why it's so important. But mm-hmm. it's just it's uncomfortable and 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 the dynamics within that don't really change regardless of who's a part of that situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, one thing I just want to add too is um, is one of the things that I think is really neat that a lot of condom companies are doing now that can actually make condom negotiation a lot smoother is they're making really fancy condoms. And so instead of being like, okay, here's the thing we have to use to like be safe and like making condom negotiation be this unsexy thing, it can be like, hey, check out this box of condoms that I got that are super cool. These ones have like an interesting shape. We should test it out, see if this shape is cool. And uh, and that is something that you, like you can if you're somebody who wants to use condoms more, that's a, a really easy way to uh, make condom negotiation a little less awkward by just being like, look at this cool thing we can try. Make it be as mm-hmm. if it's like a sex toy instead of. Uh, something that you think is is like an obligation, like brushing your teeth or flossing. <laughs> Abs- absolutely, it's like wearing white tight tidy whiteies versus some sexy lingerie. <laughs> the equivalent for condoms, in my yes, opinion. Yes, get the yeah. sexy lingerie condoms. <laughs> <laughs> That's great, Shada. I mean, so your work is has huge implications for I mean, sexual health and just general personal health for a lot of people at, of all ages, pretty well above. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so maybe we could do a quick recap of things that, uh, like a little TLDR for people that, uh, for what might dictate whether or not they have a condom negotiation, uh, or factors that might be indicative of better communication. So what what kind of factors could you say will dictate whether or not you're more likely to have good communication when it comes to common condom negotiation? Um, I think one of the most important factors is. Um is the heuristics you set for yourself. Um, I think if you have a heuristic for yourself that is something like, um, until we both get tested together, we're just gonna use condoms. And so it's not tied to how well I feel like I know this person. It's tied to getting factual evidence. Um, and you don't have to have an awkward like, oh, so how many people have you slept with? Like when, when was the last test? You can just be like, okay, we're gonna get tested and that's, that's the rule and after we get tested together and see each other's results and take any medicine we might need to take based on what the results of our tests are, uh, then we can not use condoms. So basically setting stronger heuristics for yourself instead of relying Mm -hmm. on like sloppy, lazy ones. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's, that's a really good, I mean, it's really good for people that are either A, unsure of how to approach this with their partners or are just uncomfortable in general, which I mean, as we've said, is pretty much everybody. So that would be the best approach. Is there any other tips that you could give anyone to improving their, their ability to have that kind of negotiation with their partner? So doing it before you're sexually aroused, I imagine, is, is the best call. Oh, just yeah. like you just said there, kind of setting these boundaries up in advance before you're, all, you're, you're love drunk and you can't make these decisions. Exactly. And having the, the sexy lingerie condoms so that you don't feel so awkward about suggesting it. Um, yes. I think yeah. anything you can do like that to, to make it a little bit easier on yourself. So setting up a strong rule for yourself that you're like, this is what we're gonna, this is just what's going to happen, um, and uh, and following through on it, um, and having having the sexy lingerie condom so that you can be like, <laughs> not only are we following through on it, but like, look how fun it's going to be to try this out. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think it's it's super important to set those guidelines before, and and have it as a thought, uh, uh, not as an afterthought when it's when it's already too late and then, and then it becomes awkward because you wait you delayed so long to talk about it. Yeah. Uh, let's get into the myths and misconceptions, and then I think we could talk about like I mean, we can talk a little bit about the cocktail party factor if you have any other like just like buzz buzzfeedy like facts that are interesting those are always interesting too because people like facts uh like maybe do you know how many people what the percentage of people actually use condoms uh it depends on who you're asking about like hook up like let's say uh hookups casual casual sex so hookups and casual sex people are way more likely to use condoms unless yep. they have prior acquaintanceship with that person so if it's like right. so it's somebody met at the bar tonight you're way more likely to use a condom with them because you're like, I don't know this person. This person's super unsafe. Obviously, we're going to use a condom. <laughs> yeah. And I think both parties assume that too, which is the interesting thing yeah. about you, ta- you looking into famili- familiarity, right? Like it, uh, both parties are more comfortable with it because they're not as familiar. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, okay. I mean, there's plenty of stuff we can go on for that. But so <laughs> let's get into uh, myths and misconceptions, Shana. Okay. Uh, what's, a, what's a common misconception in your research area? Uh, like I touched on this kind of in the in the first half, is I think a, a common misconception in my research area is that we're calm and cool and rational decision makers who weigh the pros and cons and and then make a decision based off of our analysis of the information, and uh, and that's just not that's just not how it works. We uh, we're we're messy, sloppy, hot decision makers, uh, hot in the sense of of hot cognition where. We're under under conditions of stress. We're under conditions of uncertainty. We're we're hungry. We're tired. We're horny. We've got all kinds of things that that screw up our decision making. <laughs> the amygdala yeah. is working overtime. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We're, I, we're I, a mess. I, I agree that we're a mess. But um, <laughs> so, like, where did this myth kind of originate from? Is it just the fact that we think that we're better than we are in the end? Yeah, and I, I think that's that's exactly it. We we think that we're better than we are, and and it has to do with the difference between hot cognition and cold con- cognition. So cold cognition is when we're sitting around like we are now, just kind of like shooting the shit, talking about stuff, and uh, and that's basically how how we think we make decisions. You you like maybe I tell you a story about something crazy I did the other day, and you're like, oh my god, I can't believe that you got up on the pool table and you were like singing karaoke, like, that's so crazy, like, I can't believe you did that, but if you had been there in the moment, you would have been up on the table too singing karaoke with me because you would have been caught up in the moment, you would have been going shot for shot with me, I imagine, <laughs> and, uh, and so you would have been in Great. the same, yeah, same situation as me, and, uh, and yeah. we, we see this kind of thing happen a lot, when, especially when something bad has happened, so if somebody has had a sexual experience that they regret. Um, it's very easy for when you tell your friends about it for them to be like, oh my God, well, I just never would have done that. So I wouldn't have been in that situation. Like I can't believe you even thought that would be a good idea. But that's, you're making that, that judgment, that decision based on, on how you are right now. You're, you're not uh, under uh, any conditions of, of sexual arousal. You haven't had anything to drink. You don't have any, any of the extraneous circumstances. You're not with somebody who you think maybe you, you could be have long-term relationship potential. You're not experiencing all of the contextual cues that are present in that moment, uh, compared to the person who's who's in that moment. In that moment, under the hot cognition situation, you've got all these things that are putting uh, different stressors on your your ability to make decisions. And then when you fall back on your heuristic of like this is probably okay, this person seems nice, um, that that can get you into trouble if it turns out that 
that that person's not so nice. Or if it turns out that you just you agreed to something and later on you're like, oh, actually, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really interesting. It's a good point. It's 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 seen everywhere, regardless of what the situation be it sexual or just just plain interactions on a on a nightly, daily basis, right? I mean, yeah. I think of going out for drinks with friends and talking the next day about what we did that night and saying, why would I do that? Why did I do that in that situation? I was just like, well, it felt right at the moment. Yeah. And that's the difference between the hot and cold cognition. Yeah. I mean, it's abundantly clear for anybody that reflects on what they've done and <laughs> doesn't like what they did. <laughs> it also feeds back into this idea of like uh, hindsight being twenty twenty, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah, looking back on that, I was maybe not thinking that clearly made a hot decision but now that i'm sitting here and i'm well rested and hydrated and not hung over i realize oh yeah not the greatest yeah and so i think i I love the other term like uh love drunk because you don't even have to be drunk and you're just aroused it could be like stress it could be you could be scared you could be really happy and you did something that you wouldn't usually do because you're so happy about something or, or you were just so infatuated by somebody. Like those are all things that can really dictate that that hot cognition, which is really interesting and, and something to keep in uh, the back of your head, I guess, when you're doing things. Like, what is your boundary that you can set? Yeah. As uh, when you're thinking through cold cognition, or you're you're more removed from it, like you said, with uh, I mean, setting up boundaries with your partner, going getting SCI checks before you're in a sexual situation where you're being forced to do something where you have that kind of uh, stress or pressure. And it, it sounds like such a, it almost sounds like such a boring thing to do to kind of like sit yourself down under cold conditions and be like, okay, um, if things go really well, I'm willing to go to like level two. I'm willing to do this. And if things, and like, okay, yeah, and you have to leave yourself a little bit of room too. So if things are going really, really well, maybe you go to level three and like that's, that's where you stop. And so you have to like have all of these levels, that you, but you're like, okay, absolutely, we're not going to level four. Like that's absolutely yeah. not, we're not doing that one. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you have if you've given yourself that time and you kind of set up these rules, including setting up your fallback. So if you say like, oh, I'm absolutely not having sex with that person. And then you haven't left yourself any wiggle room. So if you're like, okay, I'm not absolutely not having sex with this person. Like it's our first date. Like I don't know how it's going to go. Um, I don't know this person that well. And then the date goes really well. And, and like you decide and you're making out and it's super hot and then you're like, okay, actually I do want to have sex with this person. Well, you decided in advance you weren't going to and now you can't, you've made too hard a rule for yourself and because you said you were going to have sex with that person, you didn't prepare, so you didn't bring a condom and now you set yourself up for trouble. So if you set yourself up, so like I probably won't have sex with this person, but in case things go really well, maybe I will, so I'll bring a condom just in case things go really well, but we're absolutely not doing this other thing. Um, and yeah. so you like set where your limit's going to be. Um, so you set like a hard limit and set a soft limit so that you kind of like be more understanding and forgiving of yourself and give yourself the chance to like when your your sexual self-restraint is lower, maybe that gives you the chance to try something cool, but still set a hard limit so that you uh, you still can protect yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, think, I think a big part of that too, I mean, some even like countering that point is, is that it might set the partner off too because their boundaries might be different too right like yeah. things like bringing a condom to a first date and then them finding out you had a condom they're like well did you expect to have sex with me that first time first time <laughs> we met and it's like well i don't know but if i could explain my levels to you <laughs> <laughs> and it turned out i actually was getting along with you quite well so then i, I brought it up <laughs> but i mean i think that's just all about open communication and being honest with yourself and with whoever you're engaging with and that's that my dream that's my dream scenario for people to like break it down and have that conversation 
<laughs> oh yeah, that's phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. That's my dream. It's... That's that's the takeaway from this podcast is have <laughs> conversations with people, be brave. <laughs> oh man, I would love so if anybody does take these words uh, into consideration and, and actually implements this into their life, please contact Shayna <laughs> and send her a line saying this is actually how this went. I think she would love to hear that. I would, would. love to hear it too. So send us. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can put you on anonymously. Yeah, do an anonymous interaction. Just say how, how it went down. Because we love, I personally, I mean, I obviously, we're interested in the work that you do, Shana. And it's, it's really impactful. So, I mean, th- it's true. By improving communication, uh, sexual communication and negotiations, it's it can only improve other things in your life. Like communication doesn't only hold in, true in one area, right? You can always improve communication across the board. I think that's a good good example of that. That's how I would solve every rom-com. Just just talk about it. Oh my God. <laughs> Just tell them how you feel. <laughs> it's so true. So true. But they, but, but you forget that they, they missed the important part by about two seconds whenever the camera pans and then that changes their perspective. So they can't talk about it. That's how rom-coms work. Rom-coms yeah. would be short, short, short videos, like two to three minutes long, if that were the yeah. case. <laughs> oh, I thought <laughs> but you were cheating with this, this other person. Oh, no, I was just planning your birthday party. Oh, all right, then. <laughs> the end. Roll all right, let's it. go home. <laughs> what is, what's that called? Is it just called the idiot plot? Maybe. Yeah. Maybe. It sounds about right to me. Yeah, just, if people were not an idiot, <laughs> or people were not idiots in this movie, could oh, yeah. this be solved in a few minutes? <laughs> the answer is probably yes. <laughs> plot progression is a funny thing it's a fickle thing that's why i'm not i don't direct movies i don't create movies because uh, we are too logical um uh, so uh, are there any facts shana i think mean, that's a, that's a really it's a really interesting misconception i think it holds true and i think as we talked about it, there's a lot of ways we can improve in the moment and outside the moment of how we set ourselves up for it um but are there any like interesting facts or statistics that you would like that so to, for someone to say during a party or when they're at, talking to coworkers or family friends uh, that they could talk about this episode and say, "Oh, this is the stat that is really cool." <laughs> I know um, I'm setting you up pretty hard here, but I know. Ooh, I feel like I've already said so many cool things. What you else have, is cool? And that, that's so true. Yeah. Um, I think one thing that I, is really interesting is that young people are actually fairly on the ball with using condoms like they are pretty they're pretty good about it and I, I think it's because they've been getting pretty good pretty decent sex education for the most part um i mean hopefully that doesn't change if ontario decides to regress their uh at least in ontario hopefully it doesn't change if we regress to a not so good sex education system but young people are generally pretty good for setting up the, that heuristic of like how about we just use a condom because that's what, just what we should be doing um it's, um, I mean, obviously there's a lot of situations where people are putting themselves at risk or I would not have any work to do. But I think <laughs> if we're comparing across age groups, the group that actually has the most trouble using condoms and getting, getting it on and getting it done is, uh, is middle-aged and older adults. They are terrible. Um, the elderly are having lots of sex in nursing homes and are not using condoms because they're like, if they're heterosexual, they're like, oh, we're not worried about being pregnant because yeah. none of that stuff works anymore. And, uh, and like STIs, that's for young people. We don't need to worry about that. <laughs> so they're actually having problems in, uh, in retirement communities with like huge outbreaks of syphilis and gonorrhea and chlamydia because people are having a lot of sex and aren't wrapping it up. 
<laughs> I have heard that too, and it's 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 a really good. I mean, grandchildren shudder across the across the nation. I'm sure yeah. thinking of it, but it's true. Everybody has sex sex at all ages, and that I think through across all ages, it's always worried about. I mean, as kid as younger children and young adults, the 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 main worry is usually pregnancy right so i mean yeah. stis is, a, is an afterthought and i think that kind of can carry through across age groups so it's interesting to see that that's a current problem right now and and educating older adults as well is important just as much as young young children yeah i always tell my students when you go home for the summer break you need to sit your grandparents down because they didn't get the sex education you did they don't know you gotta sit them down get out the banana and the condom and show them how to push on <laughs> <laughs> that would be really funny to just be a fly on the wall for one of those. Yeah, it'd be great if they they did it. And again, being comfortable, improving communication skills, I'd love to see that come commonplace. It'd be really fun and, yes. and interesting to see open communication about that. Maybe they should start bringing sex ed into nursing homes. They're starting they in some places. There, there is yeah. starting to be a, like a little bit of a push for it, but it's really hard because, like you said, we were talking about like grandchildren shuddering, thinking. But like even just their their adult children are like, what? Oh, my mom's not having sex. Like people, there are certain groups of people we like to think of as asexual, and the elderly are among them. And yeah. uh, the same with with people with um, with uh, delayed cognitive functioning, people with disabilities. We we'd like to assume that that people with uh, with Down syndrome or severe autism are, are asexual. But no, like they still have sexual drives and. It, we need to make sure that we're they're getting sex education that's accessible. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Absolutely, it's funny. It's funny you say that, Shana. Is that uh, adults or parents are saying, "Oh, my parents aren't having sex. There's no way." They're also saying that about their children. So yeah. who the hell's having sex? Yeah, <laughs> everybody. <laughs> we're too busy to have sex. So it's like, <laughs> the whole world just stops functioning. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think you brought up a really good point. Is that you know, sex is a normal part of healthy human functioning mm -hmm. and i think that that's something that we've kind of drilled into a few times across several different episodes but i think it's really just worth bringing back one more time at least yeah. because it does impact you know um, sexual health and got to be thinking about sex ed and all these things and yeah it's just interesting yeah so. yeah your physical health is your sexual health has a huge indication on your psychological and physical health so it's all it's all part and parcel right yeah. Um, awesome. I think I think we could wrap it up, Shana. I think that was cool. awesome. That was a sweet episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to touch on? Any other things other than like we'll we'll, we'll ask how people can get in contact with you and, yeah. and all that stuff? But is there anything else that you wanted to talk talk to? Oh, actually, one thing I want to mention is we've talked a lot about uh, about condom negotiation uh, and condom use, but there's there's lots of different ways that you can negotiate safer sexual situations. And, and we mentioned about um, making sure you're getting tested, making sure you know what your monogamy agreement is with your partner. Like, if are you having outside partners? Do you have a uh, t talk about it with them? Like, if they have an outside partner, um, should they be using condoms? But the other thing too is that if, if your primary concern is something like HIV, you can take a medication like PrEP and protect yourself in advance. So if you are exposed to the virus, um, you can you can make sure that you don't actually contract HIV. By, by taking PrEP, which is kind of a, a daily medication that um, that protects your body. Awesome, that's super informative. <laughs> and, and we'll put up a little bit of information on, uh, and a link to the website if anybody's interested in further details on that, that's awesome. Yeah. Great. Great, okay, Shannon, just before you go, some housekeeping for sure. me. Uh, 
I tweeted at you today. Um, that's your Twitter account. We can link that on the website. Is that okay? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. That's my <laughs> public Twitter account. I tweet at people. Okay. Uh, awesome. People tweet She's at me. Good for that. Sweet. Okay. Yeah. Um, so Shana, we can contact you or people can contact you through your Twitter that we're going to link. Uh, what's your, what's your Twitter handle at Shana Graham? Yep. At Shana Graham. All right. Awesome. And, and Shana is very active on social media. So she is always very responsive and has some really cool stuff to, to talk about. So if you want to follow her, she would probably like followers. She's got tons of followers right now, but she can always have more. Can always can have, always more. have more. Yeah. <laughs> She's going for millions and billions right now. So, Oh my gosh, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> no, but she's a really, really informative, really fun person to follow. So if you're, if you're interested in her work, uh, definitely give her a follow. And you, we're going to also link to your website where people can look at your uh, studies that you talked about today and, and get more information on you and what you're up to. Uh, so thanks again, Shana, for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. This was great. Yeah, this was a lot you. of fun. Awesome. I hope, oh, I'm glad you say that. Um, <laughs> so uh, with that, I guess we're going to sign off. All right, and with that, we'll call this another episode of Brain Buzz. Thank you all for joining us, tuning in and listening. Uh, Shana has been an absolute delight. We're really appreciative of you stopping in, taking time today to speak with us, and I know our listeners will be as well. Um, if you've enjoyed the episode, you can find it and other episodes at brainbuzzpodcast.com. There we'll also have links to all of our bios, Shana's bio, my bio, Drake's bio, um, and ways in which you can get in contact with us, including Twitter, ResearchGate, you can drop us an email as well through our website and the contact portal, uh, as well as you'll find links to our other social media outlets such as Twitter and Instagram, including Facebook, too. So mm -hmm. check that out. Uh, if you've enjoyed, you can always catch up with us there, leave ideas for future episodes or... Uh, tell us what you liked or didn't like about maybe this or another episode. Although there's not a whole lot to dislike about this one, I think, nope. personally. Uh, so, <laughs> so with that in mind... Uh, oh, also, oh, yeah. we can... Tell your friends, tell your family, tell acquaintances that we are on Google Play, iTunes. And hopefully Spotify. And Spotify. We're, hopefully. We're getting We're going to be on Spotify. <laughs> we're going to be everywhere. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. We're going to be on that Goodyear blimp. Yeah, we're hoping. We're going to broadcast straight from yeah. the top of the Stay Goodyear Stay tuned blimp. for the Super Bowl halftime show of Brain Buzz Podcast. Because <laughs> <laughs> we have that much money on it. That's our best sign-off we've ever done. <laughs> and with that, we'll call it another episode. Thank you all for listening. Uh, until next time, cheers. Cheers. Bye.